Ed Perry, or Uncle Ed as I know him, is another one of the Trident Cornerstones. He built San Juan Seafoods out of Bellingham, Washington, and joined forces with Chuck in 1976. Like many of our cornerstones, Perry was able to incorporate his hands-on rubber boot and dead fish training. As you enter our Bellingham plant today, we still proudly showcase the original San Juan seafood sign. Join John Van Am to learn a little bit more about Perry, as well as the early days of moving in to Bristol Bay. Chapter 12, Moving into the Bay, Forget the Baby Steps. As the salmon opportunities were ripening in Bristol Bay, Trident Seafoods was establishing another connection to the salmon business and gaining a foothold on the beach near Seattle. Prior to partnering with Trident, Bellingham-based San Juan Seafoods was owned and operated by Ed Perry, along with his partner, Dave Myers, who had invested in the company but was primarily occupied in the vegetable business in California. The Bellingham Seafood Plant was located in an industrial part built over the bay at the north end of town. Adjacent to a large cold storage warehouse, the company could purchase, process, and reprocess fresh or frozen fish, store it refrigerated or frozen, and transship finished product by truck or rail. The plant was close to the Canadian border at the gateway of the Inside Passage to Alaska. It was also close to the fishing grounds of the San Juan Islands, where a fleet of local purse seiners and gillnetters harvested sockeye, pink, chinook, and coho salmon bound for Canada's Fraser River, as well as numerous local river systems flowing into Puget Sound. Ed Perry was primarily a salmon guy. Like many of Trident's cornerstones, he got his business education with rubber boots on his feet and dead fish in his hands. Perry had worked the processing floor in the cold storage at Pelican Seafoods in Southeast Alaska from 1958 to 1963, living there for six to eight months each year with his wife, Virginia. Perched on pilings on the shore of Lysiansky Inlet, the village of Pelican is a stone's throw from the Pacific Ocean at the northwest navigational corner of Southeast Alaska's Inside Passage. Its remote but protected location made it a convenient fish buying and resupply station for trollers working the abundant fair weather grounds for king salmon and coho salmon. But it was a long way from any place else, and a very long way from Montana, where Perry had grown up. There wasn't much opportunity to do anything else, so Perry had plenty of time to learn everything there was to know about salmon. After a fire disabled the Pelican freezing operation in 1963, Perry went to work for Vita Foods in Bellingham. Perry's primary focus was to run Vita's Puget Sound salmon operation, but the Vita plant was also reprocessing 15-pound blocks of frozen king crab meat into user-friendly packages for food service customers. As it turned out, Perry had been reprocessing king crab blocks from Chuck Bundrant's brand new catcher processor, the Billiken, before Perry left Vita in 1974 to start San Juan Seafoods. Bundrant had worked for Vita too, and that's where the two of them met, opening the door to four decades of close friendship and respect. Vita was going through some major leadership and organizational changes at the time, and both of the men were looking closely at another door, the one marked 
exit. The first time I remember meeting Chuck, Bud had had some insurance meeting, and here's this young skinny guy in there, Perry recalled. I was having a bad day, and I don't think I came off very good with Chuck. I was somewhat standoffish. Later on, over a couple bottles of beer, Chuck and I got to know each other pretty good. At the time, Perry was struggling to hold on to his personal reputation. My relationship with the Vita people was starting to become very strained. I was buying fish in Puget Sound, and I got directions from Vita to start buying sockeye, Perry recalled. They promised me that I'd be able to meet the market price when the season was over. The key to buying fish successfully is being able to pay your fishermen for them. If you don't have the money in your pocket or in the bank at the time, you've got to make a credible promise to pay fishermen the fair market price once you get paid for them yourself. The key to building a successful reputation is making good on those promises, but buying wild salmon is a risky and uncertain business. Nobody knows exactly how many fish will show up when a particular run of fish comes back from the ocean or how the wholesale market will react to the ultimate volume produced. But fishermen are the first people who need to be paid, and without their fish, you don't have a fish business. Typically, fishermen are a hard-nosed, independent bunch, but they all respond to money. Most of them will run to whatever tender is paying a nickel more a pound, unless you can match the price, or convince them you'll match the price once the season is over and you sell your pack to get the money to do it. It's easy to pay fishermen too much, especially when some other buyer is paying too much in hopes that the run will come in short or that the market will spike upward after the season. Combine naive optimism with an unexpected bumper crop of fish in your area or even a big run of salmon someplace else and you have a recipe for financial disaster. Too much of a good thing can dump the wholesale price of salmon into the basement and take you to the cleaners. Perry was used to taking risks and making promises. He was also proud of his reputation for being true to his word. At the time he met Bundrett, Vida wasn't giving him the backing he needed. His integrity was hanging out the porthole, tied to a promise he'd made that Vida didn't want to keep. That was the start of my demise with the Vida boys, Perry recalled. I'd secured what I thought was going to be some money. Once the season got underway, however, Vida wanted Perry to renege on his commitment to fishermen, leaving Perry and his reputation to flap in the breeze. Perry took his promises seriously and personally, and was actually going to dig into his own pocket to fulfill his commitment to the fleet. Naturally, he wasn't happy about it. I was going to pay the fishermen myself, because I told them I would, Perry remembered. Unbeknownst to me at the time, Chuck went to bat for me and said, you can't leave the guy hanging out like that. And finally, they did come around and pay the price. I didn't know this was going on at the time, but when I found out, I figured this guy Bundrant can't be all bad. I'd worked for Vida for a number of years. It must have been in the early 70s when Chuck went to work for them. That was after he'd sold the Tagetic, gone back to Tennessee, and then decided to get back into the fishing business. Vida was a medium-sized company compared to New England or Ocean Beauty. They weren't that dominant, and they were focused primarily on salmon and the king crab business. Chuck was more on the king crab side of Vida, and I was more on the salmon side. They were not in the canned salmon business. Their target was to produce fish for smoking. They had several East Coast smoking plants in New York City, Philadelphia, and Chicago. My job was to help produce mild-cure salmon for those plants. 
Mild cured salmon consisted of whole fillets that had been salted and packed into large wooden barrels called tierces. The salt preserved the fish without refrigeration and mild cured king salmon was often sold in delicatessens, thinly sliced right from the salted fillets. Alternatively, it could be soaked in fresh water to remove some of the salt in a process known as slacking and then the fish was smoked. Once the tierce was empty, it was steam cleaned and the hoops were removed. The loose staves from several barrels were then packed into another empty barrel for shipment back to the fish buyer. Each barrel stave was numbered so the tears could be reassembled with the staves in the proper order with no leaks. There were no nails or other fasteners driven through the hoops. The tierces were reassembled on the jig and the hoops driven over the staves so the tension of the barrel itself held everything together most of the time. Once sealed, the sturdy barrels were easy to transport long distances by ship, truck, or rail. In the later years, Vita started a king crab partnership with a fellow named Cap Thompson, Perry recalled. That's where Chuck came in. But as things progressed with Vita, they sold that part of the business to the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Corporation, and we could see that this kind of arrangement was not going to last long. I don't think the tobacco people really liked the fish business. The original owners of Vita, the Gilmans, left and started their own fish company with Nippon Suisan. Chuck left in 73 to build the Billiken, and I left in 74 to build San Juan Seafoods. Chuck and I joined together in 1976. By that time, I had no connection with Alaska whatsoever. It was strictly Puget Sound. But Chuck was fishing nine or ten months out of the year in Alaska with the Billiken. We took a lot of crab from Chuck and reprocessed it in Bellingham, more so after they converted the Billiken operation to pack crab in the shell rather than just the meat. That gave us wintertime work, and Mike Jacobson, Chuck's partner, sold the crab. The first Trident-branded product to run through the Bellingham plant was king crab from the Bountiful. At the time, the Billiken was still packing meat, but the Bountiful had modified its onboard operation to produce crab leg and claw sections, which were sold with the shells on. A portion of the catch was sold as clusters to Japanese buyers, the domestic restaurant and casino markets were also buying individual shell-on crab legs and claws for their fancy buffets. But there were plenty of customers who still wanted to buy crab meat shell-free. So the Bellingham plant began removing the meat from the shells, packing it into frozen blocks, and sawing the blocks into smaller frozen bars for distribution. One of Trident's first crab meat customers was Ray's Boathouse, located right next to the Shilshow Marina in Ballard. Established in 1973, the same year as Trident Seafoods, it quickly became a landmark for local diners and mariners alike. Not only was the menu worthy of attention, but the restaurant's bright red sign stood tall on the pier and literally lighted the way for hundreds of vessels sailing home from Alaska to the Ballard Ship Canal at the end of each season. Bundren couldn't pass up the opportunity and soon he became personal friends with one of Ray's partners, Russ Wallers, and began selling the restaurant cases of Billiken crab meat straight out of the back of his El Camino pickup. As Trident operations expanded, there was more and more fish to sell, and Bundren had to shift gears fast, hang up his rain gear, and put on his coat and tie. When Chuck was done fishing, he'd get involved with the selling and the actual running of the company, Perry recalled. Chuck and I did a lot of traveling together to sell product on the East Coast and in Japan. 
One time in 77 or 78, Chuck and I took off to move some inventory in the winter. I think we hit 14 cities in 14 days, and if I remember right, we called on 44 customers. A lot of times we would just walk into a city like Pittsburgh and rip the yellow pages out of the phone book. We'd take every page that said fish and just start calling people. We met a lot of good people, and a lot of them are still good customers today. In the early 70s, Puget Sound was still a meaningful fishery, and San Juan Seafoods was doing a lot of salmon. We were producing anywhere from 6 million to 20 million pounds a year. It was a good business, but not a business you were going to get rich at. It was mostly all frozen, headed, and gutted until the Japanese came in. Then we started freezing head on. Later on, San Juan got into the chum salmon filet business, and most of that went to Sweden and Denmark and some to Finland. Norway didn't take any. They were just getting into salmon farming and raising their own fish. But I sold a lot of king and coho salmon to France and England. There was a lot of smoking going on in France and Germany, but Germany was a much tougher market than France. They wanted troll-caught king salmon, and that was about it. I didn't deal a lot of troll fish at the time. They were mostly net fish. The majority of San Juan's fish came from the Seine fleet, all around the San Juans, Lummi Island, and Point Roberts. In the fall, they'd fish down in Hood Canal in Puget Sound, but we never bought fish much farther south than Kingston. For a couple of years, I bought trollfish out at Nia Bay, but it was not very profitable. It was just out of position for us. You had to truck everything such a long way. Once the Magnuson-Stevens Act came into play, Japan came on the scene, and they seemed to have more money than anyone else. In the meantime, we developed a pink salmon market in France, too, and we were becoming more of an international company and less dependent on the U.S. market. After Chuck put the Bountiful online in 1978, we got into the herring business in addition to the crab, and then came the Bristol Bay salmon business. One thing led to another, and we ended up with a boat called the Tempest, which was a freighter that had been converted into a processor. Then we had the Mr. J, which was a small crab processor, and in 1982, we bought a Canadian barge called the Ultra Processor, which we modified to process crab, herring, and salmon, and renamed it the Neptune. Quite a few of the men on Trident's early roster had worked for Vita Foods at one time or another. As noted, Ed Perry ran Vita's salmon operations in Bellingham, and Bundren himself had worked for the company, skippering the floating processor Viceroy back and forth to the king crab grounds off Adak, and even buying king salmon on the Yukon River before breaking out on his own with the Billiken. Trident founding partner Mike Jacobson had been a manager for Vita prior to joining Chuck and Corey Ness in their new company. When Trident bought into Ed Perry's San Juan Seafoods, it acquired yet another Vita Seafoods graduate who would stay with the company and serve it well for decades. His name was Bill Graves. He was Ed Perry's brother-in-law and he'd sailed with Bundrant in Alaska aboard the Viceroy. That's where I first met Chuck, Graves recalled. I'd heard a little bit about him, but not very much. He was one of the skippers who'd been on the Viceroy when it went out to ADAC, and I was working on board as a processor. After a short period of time, I was made foreman, so I stayed three and a half years on the Viceroy before I got the opportunity to move down to Bellingham and run Vita's crab packing operations there. As skipper of the Viceroy, Chuck was a bit of a character. 
He was hardworking, hard driving, and had a very, very strong work ethic, but he liked to have a good time, too. He liked to have a little pop once in a while. We'd leave Seattle on our way to Dutch Harbor. We'd stop in Ketchikan to pick up bait, which should have taken about 12 hours, but he was usually there about three days because there was usually a little partying going on. Once we got that out of our system, then we'd go north. The Viceroy was a 176-foot military vessel converted into a crab processing boat where you actually took the live crab and butchered them, cooked them, and then shook the meat out of the shell and into 15-pound blocks. That product was shipped down to Bellingham where Ed Perry ran the facility that was owned by Vita. They cut it up and marketed it in the U.S. We didn't do any sections early on. It was 100% meat, and that was the same product they produced the first year on the Billiken. Graves left Vita and went to work for Ed Perry when Perry started San Juan Seafoods in 1974. When Bundrant bought into San Juan in 1976, the acquisition made perfect sense since it brought Ed Perry, Mike Jacobson, Chuck Bundrant, and Bill Graves back together under the new red, white, and blue Trident flag, where the four of them could share their collective expertise and ambition. With the addition of San Juan Seafoods, Trident acquired a foothold on the beach in Bellingham, and it began to expand its mobile fleet at sea in Alaska, where salmon, herring, and crab were abundant, and the sky would be the limit. Early on, Trident's Bristol Bay operation was exclusively a floating one, and the product that made it work was frozen sockeye salmon bound for Japan. We were doing 100% frozen, Graves recalled. We didn't have a cannery in Naknek at the time. We were packing whole round salmon on the Billiken, the Bountiful, and the Tempest, and started doing H&G aboard the Neptune. The majority of it went to Japan. We had no markets in the U.S. at that time. The Japanese were there in the bay in force, and they were buying 95% of it. Graves understood how the political pushback of Japan's high seas fishery off Alaska had opened the door to new markets in Tokyo. The 200-mile limit came in, and their high seas fleet got cut back. That was before farmed fish, and they were still counting on sockeye. That was one of the top seafood items consumed in Japan. They paid the highest prices in Alaska, so they ended up with all the product. Still, it wasn't all that simple. Before Trident could sell any product to Japan, they first had to buy the salmon, process them into an acceptable frozen product form at sea, and negotiate a satisfactory price. They also had to build a fleet of local independent fishermen, and the connection with San Juan Seafoods proved to be the critical link in building the Trident fleet. Thanks to limited entry, it was becoming easier to build the fleet from scratch, but it helped that San Juan already had a fleet of experienced fishermen from Puget Sound who were eager to take advantage of the new opportunity up north. Ironically, the system designed to protect Alaska fishermen by limiting entry to Alaska salmon fisheries actually opened the door for an armada of new floating fish buyers to establish fleets of their own. And by 1979, Trident was ready to seize an opportunity that hadn't existed 10 years earlier. Established shore-based processors had spent a century in Bristol Bay building and controlling their own company fleets. In the early days of the fishery, at the turn of the 20th century, the canneries owned all the vessels in their fleets and assigned boats to seasonal skippers 
who were brought up from San Francisco, San Diego, San Pedro, and a handful of small communities around Puget Sound. Various canneries nurtured camps of fishermen who lived and worked with others of similar ethnic makeup. Immigrants from countries with fishing traditions stuck together and fished small, sail-powered wooden boats with their relatives and countrymen. Slavs in one camp, Italians in another, and Scandinavians in yet another. Much of the work in the plants was performed by Chinese laborers. In the early 20th century, the powerful Alaska Packers Association would sail its fleet of square-rigged ships up to Bristol Bay. Loaded with cannery workers, fishing crews, tin, canning equipment, lumber, packing crates, and all the supplies necessary for an entire season. APA companies built and operated canneries at the mouth of every river system in the bay. Fishermen were assigned to company-owned boats and worked their small craft by day and spent the night in bunkhouses. Once the sockeye run tailed off at the end of July, the boats and barges were stored on the beach and thousands of cases of salmon were packed aboard the ships. The canneries were boarded up for the winter and everyone left. Salmon runs dwindled and the ownership of the canneries changed after World War II, but the model for self-sufficient shore-based canneries remained sound. It was difficult for any fisherman to consider himself truly independent when the canneries still owned a large percentage of the fishing boats, boat storage and repair facilities, and grocery and gear stores. What's more, Bristol Bay fishermen were limited to fishing only with sail power until the law was changed in 1951. Cannery tenders would tow the open double-ended wooden sailboats out to fish offshore by day, where pairs of fishermen would set and pull their nets by hand. Each skipper had a crewman called the puller. The fishermen would sail and row their boats back to the canneries to deliver on the flood tide and sleep in the company bunkhouse at night. Why did Bristol Bay cling to sail power for so long? Some say that sticking to the old inefficiencies was a convenient method of limiting harvesting capacity to protect fish runs and jobs. The dry boats with no ice or refrigeration were good enough for harvesting fish destined for the can, and by definition, maintaining the status quo didn't require anything to change, nor did it demand much in the way of new investment. To more progressive thinkers, however, the romance of wind power amounted to a dangerous formula for maritime disaster, as well as a convenient method for keeping fishermen fully dependent on the shoreside processors that owned their boats, owned their bunks, and demanded their catch. In 1948, a stretch of sandbar outside the Naknek River earned the name Dead Man's Sands when a fierce storm blew up out of the southeast on a strong flood tide. Sailboats returning from the grounds were blown into the shallows. When their keels touched bottom, they swamped and 10 fishermen drowned in one tide. Even after gas power was legalized and introduced into the bay in 1951, fishermen remained largely dependent on shore-based canneries for support. But a new institution was coming with Alaska statehood, one that would simultaneously limit access and expand opportunities for a new independent fleet of gill netters in Bristol Bay. Limited entry came as a popular and later controversial amendment to the Alaska State Constitution. The language of the amendment noted emphatically that limited entry 
did not grant exclusive property rights to harvesting fish, but it did grant the state the power to limit entry into any fishery for purposes of resource conservation, to prevent economic distress among fishermen and those dependent upon them for a livelihood. The amendment passed with nearly an 80% majority, and the result was the creation of the Alaska Commercial Fisheries Entry Commission, which determined precisely how many fishing permits for what particular gear types would be allowed in each of the salmon management areas throughout the state. The permits were assigned to specific gear types according to historical participation in each area. For example, Southeast Alaska salmon fisheries had historically provided salmon harvesting opportunities for gill netters, purse saners, and trollers. Accordingly, a proportional number of permits were issued to each gear group in Southeast. In Bristol Bay, the traditional gear groups included only two types of fishermen, drift gill netters, who could range freely to fish in any of the five river districts using vessels with a maximum length of 32 feet, and set netters, who were required to anchor one end of their nets to the beach at all times. Roughly 1,800 drift net permits and 1,000 set net permits were issued to fishermen in Bristol Bay. One very important provision of the state statute was that permits were awarded to individual fishermen based on their personal history of participation and their individual level of economic dependence on the fishery. Personal history was defined by years of participation. Economic dependence was measured by a point system that estimated the level of hardship that would be encountered by an individual if he was denied the opportunity to fish. Permits could be granted only to natural persons, not corporations or partnerships. Once granted, permits could be freely transferred, bequeathed to children, given away, or bought and sold at whatever price the market would bear. However, the Limited Entry Commission had to approve each transaction to ensure that permits were transferred only to individuals who were capable of fishing them. While the language of the amendment stated it did not grant exclusive harvesting rights to any entity, that's pretty much what it did for about 11,000 individuals fishing 26 designated areas for salmon statewide. No new fishermen could enter the fishery without a valid permit. So the permits behaved like freely traded memberships to a network of exclusive commercial fishing clubs. However, a permit holder was required to be present when his vessel or set net site was operating. Permits could be temporarily transferred to another individual in cases of illness, death, disability, or other unforeseen events such as a military call-up, but they could not be leased. This structure prevented fishermen, processors, and speculators from setting themselves up as absentee landlords and accumulating multiple permits for the purpose of profiting by controlling access to state fisheries. The value of permits continues to fluctuate with the value of the fisheries to which they are assigned. After a good season with solid prices, the value of permits for an area typically increases. But just like the stock market, Past performance does not guarantee future return, so the expectation of future value affects permit prices considerably. 
if fishermen expect broader markets, higher fish prices, and more fish in the future, permit prices increase accordingly. The converse is also true, and the uncertainty of the permit market adds a whole new level of risk and opportunity to a profession that already has plenty of both. Any U.S. citizen can buy a permit to fish salmon in Alaska, and permits are regularly offered for sale by individuals and through commercial brokers. At this writing, Bristol Bay drift permits are being offered for $90,000. The value is down $70,000 from two years ago. In the mid-80s, following a year of uncommonly high sockeye prices, the market value of a Bristol Bay permit soared to as high as $300,000. Fishermen looking to get into the bay need to be careful about when they buy. Fishermen looking to get out of the bay need to be careful when they sell. Prior to joining Trident Seafoods in 2004 and becoming vice president in charge of its salmon division, John Garner had worn a lot of hats in Alaska. He was born in Ketchikan and spent all of his summers working in the commercial fishing industry. In 1974, after completing two years of law school at the University of Washington, he was appointed to a vacancy on the newly established Alaska Limited Entry Commission. As Garner recalled nearly 40 years later, the program ushered in a whole new paradigm for the salmon fishery of Bristol Bay. My goal was to implement the program as quickly and as efficiently as possible, as fairly as possible, and to ensure that the appeals process was accessible to everyone as needed, Garner recalled. The broader goal was to rejuvenate the salmon fisheries in the state by limiting fishing effort and overcapitalization. Looking at the historic record of Bristol Bay harvests, one sees that the 14 years between statehood, 1959, and the constitutional amendment authorizing limited entry, 1973, were dismal years for fishing. The average statewide catch was just 8 million salmon, and the 1973 season hit rock bottom, producing only 761,000 sockeye, the worst season on record. Hammered by poor natural survival and heavy interception by the Japanese high seas fleet, Bristol Bay was teetering on the brink. Fortunately, it was the brink of recovery. When the limited entry amendment was passed, the fishery was right at the very bottom of salmon returns, Garner recalled. There was a real need to take drastic action in order to rejuvenate the salmon business and make it prosper. There was definitely a will to take some very difficult steps. Fishing pressure was increasing throughout Alaska at the same time that natural runs were declining. It was a recipe for overfishing and economic ruin. Not only were Japanese fleets continuing to pound away on salmon beyond state jurisdiction, but declining salmon runs and political and judicial activities in Washington state were causing an increasing number of West Coast and Puget Sound fishermen to head north and take their chances slugging it out in Alaska. Washington's tribal fishermen were suing the state of Washington in federal court to assert their treaty rights to 50% of the harvestable salmon, and the future for non-tribal fishermen there was tenuous. Even though the numbers of fish available up north were relatively low by Alaska standards, it was better than the situation in Puget Sound, Garner noted. So Alaska residents and longtime Alaska fishermen 
regardless of where they lived, were looking for some way to stem the tide and halt this great influx of fishermen to areas that basically didn't have a lot of fish. As Garner saw it, the problem was clear. It was a classic tragedy of the commons. If left open to everyone who had a notion to give fishing a try, Alaska salmon fisheries would soon be decimated by too many fishermen chasing too few fish. Something had to be done, and there was broad consensus that salmon fisheries had to be limited. The opportunity to fish had to be allocated to protect state salmon runs and preserve the coastal communities and livelihoods that salmon fishing made possible. So the problem was clear, but the details and the impact of the solution had yet to be reckoned with. When the constitutional amendment occurred in Alaska in 1972, the nuts and bolts of the program weren't known, Garner explained. That was all developed much later, after the statute passed, and after regulations were developed to determine who was going to win and who was going to lose. As those things became clarified, of course, some people who were proponents of the program actually found themselves losers when they weren't awarded a permit. Unlike subsequent programs developed by federal regulators to limit access to halibut, black cod, pollock, and crab fisheries in the waters off Alaska, the state program for salmon did not award limited entry permits directly to vessel owners. It was true that being a vessel owner demonstrated one's historic investment in a fishery and presumably showed one's commitment to the future well-being of the fish resource. However, this was worthy of consideration in the Alaska program only if the owner actually fished the boat himself. When the limited entry program was crafted, Garner explained, they made a very strategic decision that the entities eligible for permits would be gear license holders. That is, the individuals who were licensed to operate gear in Alaska, not boat owners. The reason for that, Garner said, was to ensure that fishermen could exercise their independence. In some areas, the existing processing companies had very sizable ownership of boats, and they used that ownership as a way to control their fishermen. In going the route that it did, the Alaska program created an opportunity for a degree of independence the fleet didn't have before limited entry. It took control of the right to fish out of the hands of fish processing companies and put it in the hands of individuals. That changed the nature of the power between processors and fishermen. Not long after the limited entry law was implemented, and in some cases immediately afterward, shoreside canneries began selling off their catcher boats. Ideally, they'd sell them to loyal fishermen who could be expected to keep fishing for the cannery even after they'd been awarded a newly printed exclusive permit that allowed them to fish for anyone. The boat no longer had the leverage, Garner explained. In the old days, it was the boat, not the gear license, that made the difference. If the cannery had a skipper they didn't like, they could easily get rid of him and recruit a new one. All the new skipper needed was a $20 gear license. The cannery provided the boat. With limited entry, the tables were turned. Canneries had boats, but cannery fleets were aging, and fishermen were looking for boats they could call their own boats with engines and propellers they could drive away to fish wherever they wanted. What's more, they could sell their catch to whichever buyer was willing to pay the highest price. The boat could be an incentive, Garner said, 
but it couldn't be a barrier to entry any longer. Canneries didn't have the permit lever to force fishermen to do what they wanted them to do. Fishermen had the permit, and with that permit, they could find a fishing position without feeling so much leverage from the plant. The guy with the permit had the opportunity to shop around, and companies could only solicit permit holders, which were now limited in number, to fish the boats they owned. From the plant standpoint, Garner said, the boats were now a liability. Company boats not only had to be maintained and stored at company expense, but they also had to be insured. If a skipper or crewman on one of those vessels was injured or killed, maritime law placed a substantial liability burden on the vessel owner, requiring a much higher level of compensation than would be awarded to a cannery worker on shore. Given the power shift, one would think that the entrenched salmon canning industry might have pushed hard to prevent the limited entry law from taking effect. But the way Garner saw it, there was too much political momentum pushing the law through. I think they saw it coming, but they didn't feel that the politics allowed them to fight it very hard, Garner said. They understood that the fleet was desperate and that something was going to happen, good or bad. The train of change was coming to Alaska salmon fisheries, and if processors wanted to keep a fleet, they had to keep their fishermen happy. Fishermen would have a powerful head of steam if legislation succeeded, and processors saw no advantage of throwing themselves in front of the train. As Garner recalled, there was no reason to tick off their fleet, so they played it pretty low-key. While shore-based operations were downplaying the opportunity for their fishermen to leave the fold and find new markets, a fleet of floating processors was preparing to do just the opposite. It took a few years for the offshore momentum to build and for the floaters to arrive in force because salmon runs were still very poor in the first years of the program. But by 1979, when Trident's Bountiful arrived in the bay, followed by the Billiken and the Tempest in 1980 and the Neptune in 1982, the sockeye fishery was on the rebound and a new fleet of floating processors and freelancing fishermen was challenging the old ways of doing business. By 1985, there were 39 floating processors buying and freezing sockeye salmon in Bristol Bay, nearly twice the number of shore-based facilities. And while their processing capacity was limited by the size and floating nature of their operations, they purchased and processed about half of the catch that year nearly 56 million pounds of salmon, just 3 million pounds less than the shore-based plants. So how did floating processors, the newcomers to Bristol Bay, attract a fleet of gill netters away from the established shore-based buyers? And how did they acquire the equipment and know-how to process the catch successfully in the cramped confines of a vessel? For Trident, the connection to San Juan Seafoods was a good jumpstart. They could simply borrow seasoned processing employees and even some fishermen from the salmon operation in Bellingham. We started going north in 1979 with Chuck and his crew on the Bountiful, Bill Graves recalled. We'd take the people from here in Bellingham who had the expertise in salmon and herring and we'd go up there and spend anywhere from four to five months in Alaska and then come back here. So we laid the groundwork for the processing operation. We also took some of the fishermen we knew that used to fish in Puget Sound and got them to start fishing for Trident in Alaska. 
those who were fortunate enough to be fishing Bristol Bay when the limited entry program was implemented received a permit from the state of Alaska for nothing but an annual fee. Estimating the value of permits was difficult before an open market mechanism for advertising and trading them developed. But by 1978, the estimated value of a Bristol Bay Drift gillnet permit was pegged at $42,000. The average sockeye salmon price that year was 73 cents a pound, and the average gross income for a Bristol Bay gillnetter was $31,200. The next season, 1979, was one for fishermen to remember. The great slot machine of ocean productivity spelled out S-O-C-K-E-Y-E, and the Bristol Bay catch soared to 21 million fish, three times the previous 10-year average. The fish were back, the run was large, and so was the price which topped a dollar a pound for the first time in history. The average gross income for gillnetters more than doubled to $70,000. Optimism for yet another good season caused permit prices to skyrocket to $107,000 and more than 250 Bristol Bay fishermen ordered new boats, many of them made of aluminum and priced in the neighborhood of $100,000. The economic ride was short-lived. The next year, an unprecedented run of sockeye estimated at 64 million fish flooded the bay, overwhelming fishermen and processors alike. Suddenly, there were too many salmon. Sockeye stocks were clearly recovering fast, but market demand and processing capacity were way behind the curve. ADF&G had been predicting a record run, but the market hadn't yet absorbed the pack from the previous summer. Preseason price offers plummeted to 40 cents a pound. When the fish arrived in late June, they had an easy swim up the river. About a thousand gillnetters refused to fish and remained on strike until a settlement was finally reached on July 2nd for a price of 57 cents a pound. Despite the strike, the average gillnetter caught more fish than he had the previous season, but gross revenues averaged $30,000 less. Optimism cooled, and permit values tumbled down to $66,000. Limited entry proved to be a wild teeter-totter of risk and opportunity for everyone in the Bay. Fishermen who'd received permits for free in 1975 owned a piece of paper worth $107,000 just four years later. One year after that, its value had dropped by $40,000. Worse yet, a fisherman who bought into the fishery in 1979 had to pay $107,000 just for a ticket to fish. Add a new aluminum gillnetter for $100,000 at an interest rate between 15 and 20%, throw in fuel and crew payments, and the cost of fishing a six-week season was nearly a quarter million dollars. But despite the correction in 1980, sockeye returns remained strong in Bristol Bay and the sockeye market continued to grow as Japanese companies bid up the prices for salmon they could no longer catch themselves. Vic Scheibert remembers the early days when Trident's Bristol Bay presence was purely a floating operation with no shore-based facilities except a small pink trailer in Naknek, where Diane manned the radios to coordinate logistics while Chuck made the rounds in a helicopter. 
Trident was a small newcomer, but they were gambling everything on sockeye too. In those days, we froze them in the round, which is basically a whole fish, and 95% of it was sold to Japan, Scheibert recalled. It was quite typical for a Japanese husband to go and buy a nice fish and bring it home. Having the head on and having a nice presentation made it a much bigger deal than it is now in the more convenient world that we're in today. Now, everybody wants everything ready to go and ready to eat. In those early years, we had the bountiful freezing and the tempest and the Neptune freezing too. The only thing we had on the beach in those days was the trailer. We had code words for the boats and everything was done on the radio. The tempest was called the Blue Canoe. We called the Bountiful the Blue Leader. And the Neptune Barge was called the Blue Box because it looked like a box. We had the Neptune over in the Nushagak and the Bountiful and Tempest were in the Naknek. I remember Bart Eaton coming out to the boat and talking to Chuck about this place called Egagik. Back in those days, you were either in the Naknek or the Nushagak, but Bob Morton, who was processing aboard the Bristol Monarch, was apparently sending a tender down there to buy fish. I remember the conversation because Egagik became such a huge part of the Bristol Bay fishery as the years went on. At that time, though, Bart and Chuck didn't seem to know much about it either. They were talking together and saying, well, what do you think? Shall we send a tender down to that place? How far away is that? It makes me realize how much has changed from the early part of the bay fishery when Egagik, which became the mecca for independent fishermen, was considered some remote place that was nearly inaccessible down the chain. Back then, the canneries were very big operations, and most people fished out of a cannery. If you fish knack that's pretty much the only place you fished. Typical cannery fishermen didn't move around much, they weren't what we called as hostile and mobile as the early Trident fishermen in Bristol Bay. A few of those guys still fish with us. They're getting up there in years now, but they were an independent group of guys and they were willing to fish for somebody who wasn't so established on the beach. They would store their boats in private boat storage outfits. Our original Bristol Bay fleet started with just 10 guys. The first time I was up doing salmon, we just had the Bountiful, the Billiken, and the Tempest. But when the Neptune came along in 1982, we finally had what we considered a real processor. And those fish weren't simply frozen round, they were headed and gutted. The Neptune could do considerably more fish per day than the Bountiful or the Tempest. But still, if our total volume was 10 million pounds, it was a good year. The height of our Bristol Bay era was the 1994 season. We bought 50 million pounds of salmon. We had the North Naknek Cannery and the South Naknek Cannery. We had the Sea Alaska, the Independence, the Alaska Packer, the Tempest, the Neptune, and the Bristol Monarch. And we also used the Bountiful down in Ugashik. We had a huge processing capacity, and we had a fishing fleet of around 490 boats. Today, we have about 340. That's still a sizable fleet, but we had an armada in 94. One of every four boats fishing the bay was fishing for Trident. As noted earlier, fishermen have some tough decisions to make each year as they wait for preseason sockeye forecasts 
and watched the value of their boats and permits rise and fall with the unpredictable tides of the global salmon and currency markets. Still, fishermen aren't the only ones gambling on preseason sockeye forecasts. Processors are gambling too, and every year, Trident puts a lot of chips on the table. I can't recall exactly what we figure it costs us to crank out the first salmon in Bristol Bay now, Scheibert said, but I want to say it's 15 to 20 million dollars just to show up. There's a big difference in the cost for us to show up versus the cost for one gillnetter showing up with a crew of two other guys and an insurance bill. We have a huge amount at stake in the way of costs if we don't get the volume we gear up for. We calculate our anticipated capacity needs using the ADF&G and FRI forecasts. In addition to the salmon forecasts generated by state biologists, Alaska salmon processors spend a substantial amount of money each year to fund the efforts of the Fisheries Research Institute at the University of Washington. FRI, as it's known, has been studying the Bristol Bay ecosystem and the sockeye salmon resource since 1949. Part of FRI's work is directly contracted by the fish processing industry to produce an independent forecast of each year's Bristol Bay return and to provide in-season updates of salmon run strength and timing based on a small test fishery conducted at Port Moeller, roughly 300 miles from the Naknek River. The test fishery is designed to intercept sockeye on their way to Bristol Bay and to collect scientific data on their size, age, and abundance. The data is then correlated with similar data from previous runs and provided to processors in a format that estimates what will happen on the grounds seven days hence. This allows processors to assign tenders to various locations and either brace for the impending wall of fish or continue biting their nails. Of course, you have to consider your own confidence in those forecasts, Scheibert noted. The fishermen are going to expect you to handle the fish no matter what comes in. At a minimum, they'll expect you to do it as well as any other packer does. Given that the preseason forecasts from ADF&G and FRI are typically issued in November, half a year away from the appearance of the first sockeye of the new year, processors are obliged to start their planning totally reliant on paper fish and their gut instincts. If it's a fairly substantial run forecast, we'll be taking pretty much all of our floating processing vessels and gearing up with tenders and the maximum number of people, Scheibert said. In a period of declining runs, we'll be making adjustments to try not to overdo it and go up there with too much equipment and pile up so much cost into that that we can't make any money. We're always going to operate our North Nagnik plant, which we've poured millions of dollars in capital into over the last few years to get its capacity up to where it is. So now, we adjust by modifying the number of floating processors we utilize. Last year, we tied up two of them permanently, the Alaska Packer and the Pribilof. With the forecasts coming down again, we're considering sending only one ship up this year and having the other go someplace else, like Prince William Sound, to relieve one of the factory trawlers that's been participating in the salmon fishery. It's a constant juggling act trying to get the right combination of processors and tenders to be able to handle the fish, Scheibert explained. 
One problem when you dial back is the potential for having fish return strong to all four rivers at the same time. Even though the forecast might not look very good, you could end up buying a hell of a lot of fish and not having enough processing capacity to handle it. And obviously, there's another side of that. Let's say you go up with a lot of processing capacity and the fish don't show up. You can't buy the fish and you end up losing money because you have all of those costs and no production. Therein lies the rub. I wouldn't tell a fisherman this, Scheibert added, but what's worse is going up and not making any money because you were making sure you could handle all the fish that never materialized. Fishermen might be happy that they never got put on limits, and you may feel comfortable that you were able to take care of your fleet, but at the end of the day, you lose money. We got into a situation last year when we tied up the Alaska Packer and the Pribilof, he recalled. We knew if we got into a lot of fish, we were going to have a problem keeping up with it. And we did get into a fair amount of fish for about six days. But we were able to handle it by sending in a boat to pack sockeye to another one of our plants outside the bay. There's no question we were concerned that if we really got slammed, we'd be in a pickle and maybe even a bigger pickle than some of the other packers. If that had been the case, we would have had some very unhappy fishermen. A fisherman who has purchased a gill netter for $150,000 with a capacity to pack 30,000 pounds of sockeye is not a happy fisherman when the bay is full of jumping salmon and he can only sell 5,000 pounds of fish a day because he's on limit. If his processor has reserved capacity mothballed in Seattle, it's worse. And if other local buyers have limits of 10,000 pounds, it's worse yet. And sometimes it's grounds for divorce. A processor who loses fishermen over the long term is a processor who will likely lose fish and money in the future. It works in cycles, Scheibert explained. If you're a big buyer like Trident, when the runs are cycling strong, it's a lot easier to retain your fleet because other packers with less capacity aren't looking for more boats. They're not interested in stealing your fishermen. And from the fisherman's side, it's a lot more difficult to set out on your own to get a market with a different company because they're already maxed out on their processing capacity and they don't need your fish. If you're in declining years, like we are right now, everyone's looking for more fish and everyone's trying to sign up more fishermen. So if you go up to the bay in a declining year, with more capacity than you need, you've already spent more money than you should have, and it's difficult to compete on price with the little guy who's operating at optimum capacity and can afford to pay more. The impact of salmon on Trident Seafoods is far less now than it was in 1997 and 1998, Scheibert said. Those were our disaster years. Both years had extremely low runs and most of the rivers were closed for quite a bit of the season. In 1997, we had a huge amount of iron committed to the bay. We had both the North and South Naknek canneries geared up. We had the Independence there. We had the Sea Alaska. We had the Alaska Packer. We had the Neptune Processing Barge. And we had the Tempest there. It was a huge amount of processing capacity and money, and the fish didn't show up. During the previous five seasons, the Bristol Bay fleet had delivered an average of 190 million pounds of sockeye to processors each year. In 1997, 
total deliveries plummeted to 63 million pounds, leaving processors with a sockeye deficit of 127 million pounds. So, in 98, we cut back, Shabert recalled. We didn't bring the Tempest up, and we moved the independence to southeast, but still, it was terrible. The sockeye volume had dropped by another 13 million pounds. It was a disaster for Trident Seafoods. And at that time, a much larger portion of Trident's profits came out of Bristol Bay salmon than it does today, Shibert said. Now that we're more diversified and have salmon operations in other areas and a larger presence in the Pollock fishery, it isn't so life-threatening to the company. I think the forecasts in general are fairly accurate, Shibert said. It'll always be slightly more or slightly less, but generally they're on. What they will tell you, though, is that they frequently miss the turns in the trend. When a turnaround comes, that's when they miss it. For example, in 2011, the forecast was 20% higher than what we got. That was the first year of a decline, and that's a sizable discrepancy. I've been up here since the early 80s. But Chuck ran the operation through 1999, Shivert explained. I took it over in 2000. And I'll never forget how stressful that was. We had scaled way back after the two disaster years, and of course, the fish showed up. It was not as big as everyone thought it might be, but they all showed up in a wall at once. And it just buried us in the fleet. It was a pretty disturbing time, but we got through it. Fortunately... Not every season is so painful. Occasionally, you have a year like 2010, when we had a nice bell curve, he recalled. It started off and built into a nice peak and slowed down, but with a lot of fish on the back end, too. The result was a low-stress season that was financially quite good, but most of them aren't like that. The older you get, the easier it is to have it roll off your shoulders, Scheibert said but it's still hard to keep it from amping you up. It's a really intense fishery, one of the most intense fisheries we have to deal with here at Trident. The good thing is that Mr. Bundrant can certainly appreciate that after running it himself for so many years. He knows what the deal is. We hope that you enjoyed Chapter 12, Moving Into the Bay. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you can be the first to know when our next episode, Cash Buying 101, is released on Wednesday, April 8th. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams.